Welcome! This is Field Points of View with Cameron Dawson and Johnny Gibson, a podcast about macro markets and investing brought to you by Fieldpoint Private. Cameron Dawson and Johnny Gibson work for Fieldpoint Private and are investment advisors registered with Fieldpoint Private Securities. All opinions expressed by Cameron or Johnny or any podcast guest are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Fieldpoint Private. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and you are encouraged to speak with an investment professional before making any investment decisions. It is possible that clients of Fieldpoint Private will have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Fieldpoint Private Securities is an SEC-registered broker-dealer and registered investment advisor and is a member of FINRA. Hello, and welcome to Field Points of View. I'm Cameron Dawson, Chief Market Strategist at Fieldpoint Private. In today's episode, we are thrilled to be joined by Kieran Kavana, the Chief Investment Officer and co-founder of Old Farm Partners. Speaking with Kieran is always a thought-provoking treat. Firstly, because of his background, he was the Head of External Manager Selection at Soros Fund Management, and now because of the work he does at Old Farm Partners. This work provides him with some really unique perspective and insight on the world. Old Farm focuses on finding investment opportunities with small and medium-sized hedge funds, but also pursues co-investments with funds. We talk about this strategy of co-investments in detail in the episode, but in order to find these opportunities, Kieran and his team are constantly speaking with some of the sharpest minds in finance, many of whom are on the leading edge of new technologies and shifts in the investing landscape. Kieran has a distinctive ability to filter through all of these promises of innovation and change to not only determine which are the best investment opportunities, but also to connect all of these different ideas into thoughtful insights on everything from public market dynamics to industry structure to asset allocation to the future of transformative technologies. And so without further delay, we present Field Points of View in a conversation with Kieran Kavana, CIO and co-founder of Old Farm Partners. Well, Kieran, thank you for joining us today. Well, uh, just to start off, maybe you could give us just a little bit of background and tell us uh, uh, what you do at Old Farm Partners. Sure. Uh, glad to do it. Appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Um, so we are a, um, we run about $400 million in a fund of hedge funds and co-investment uh, vehicles where we, we focus on small and mid-sized hedge funds doing lots of things. And we also invest alongside those managers in single ideas of uh, short duration. Um, co-investments for us are like any, anything that within a two-year timeframe. So it could be equity and credit, could be long, could be short, could be pre-IPO idea. My partner and I, we were at Soros together, which is a family office, very large family office. And uh, we did a similar strategy there. Um, and when it works, it works great. So maybe let's dive into a couple of the things that makes Old Farm unique and maybe the first one, and we'll revisit the topic of co-investments because I think that's something we can dive into with a lot more detail. But this idea that you are looking for this niche sweet spot of the size of investments that you're doing and maybe why that can be so powerful in that medium-sized fund. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a... Uh... It's a, it's a lot of just human nature, honestly. You want to make sure you're aligned with people. And when they're investing your money, um, I think that having 
a substantial amount of personal money and where people only make a lot of money on the incentive fee and not the management fee um, is really important to us. And it, and it gets even more magnified when you have things like co-investments because they can be very volatile. And so you want to make people, sure people have skin in the game and they're, they're really focused on, on that one idea and they don't have nine different ways to get paid. Yeah. And then, you know, the opportunity to focus on a smaller fund that might be too small for a very large investor to participate in seems to open up an opportunity set where you can be a little bit more flexible. Yeah, it does. Exactly. It's a, uh, it's a great area, but it's an area that, you know, a a single investor can't really focus too much time because there are thousands of hedge funds or a lot that you have to be, you really have to avoid. And there's, it's great to find these diamonds that are up, but it takes a lot of time. And what we have found is that um, there's so much expertise out in the world, whether it's something very specific, like someone's a biotech investor or someone is a high yield investor that, uh, or they have some sort of niche in the market and um, finding those people, it's very fun. They're often not in New York city, actually, you know, where we are based. Um, they're often regionally. Uh, we find there's some great cities of hotbeds of talent, like in Dallas and uh, uh, outside San Francisco, but anyway, but yeah, you, it's a, it's a neat area, and there's plenty of things to do in that area right now. So maybe let's dive into this concept of co-investments because I think it might be quite foreign to some people who may have not even heard of what a what a co-investment is, how it works, and why it can be so powerful. So maybe give a little bit of background and uh, why you think that co-investments are are increasingly attractive in this environment. You know, Karen, it's just the way the world has moved, and we're we're just taking advantage of it. I think in that um. Not everything has to be packaged in one fund with a large management fee and a big incentive fee. What's happening um, with co-investments and really private equity, they've been doing co-investments for a long time. I think it's much more common. But what we're seeing is a movement towards more sophisticated investors, family offices, high net worth individuals. They want ideas and in our and we do too. And for us, we can isolate a certain idea. It could be a single stock, it could be a theme, it could be a hedge, you know, like a big macro hedge. Um, we've done all those kinds of things. And so a co-investment is just a single thing that you're trying to isolate, um, often has no management fee and, and a small incentive fee. And you really do have to do your work in this area because you got to be careful because they can be up or down quite a bit. Um, so we size them appropriately. We underwrite every idea. And when it works, to, you know, to your point, it, it, is, it is amazing. I mean, my last job, um, my partner and I, uh, we had a couple of situations where we just had such big gains on one or two ideas that are very, very idiosyncratic, and it really affected our overall portfolio. Especially, it, it really you really see it when beta moves in the markets maybe aren't as big as they've been in the past, and you can have this one big win, and you're like, you really feel like, boy, this is this is the future, and you're not always going to get them right. So you know your hit rate still is going to be. 50, 60%. You just, what I found is that the slugging percentage or the amount of money you can make on the wins is just so much better than the amount that you lose on, on your losses. So we, we like it. So you're working with these funds and then you see a particular investment that the fund is making and decide yep. to do a specific investment in that one area that the fund might be doing multiple other things, but that's how the co-investment works. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I mean, 
it, it's as much as, um, you know, it, sometimes we're pushing, sometimes they're pushing um, an idea. Um, but for us, you know, what we're trying to do is we're trying to use pattern recognition. So if someone's really good at something um, and they bring us that I, an idea that's consistent with their history, that's something we jump on. But it is, it is exactly as you say, it's less though about, you know, me as a, you know, an allocator saying, boy, I want to get more exposure to X, Y, Z because um, I've not done the work, you know, so and I don't pretend to have done the work. Um, so we, what we do is we look for people with, the, again, these areas of expertise and really try to get exposure to that area of, that we think they're really good at. It's funny, that seems like it's half the battle sometimes within deciding on investments is knowing who has a very specific area of expertise and knowing who you can trust and who's done the work. And if you can, you can discern that, then that can actually be something that can magnify how you can make decisions because you don't have to be the one actually doing all of the heavy lift of the background work yourself. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's it's a fast. It, it's fascinating because um, you know, uh, where I used to work before, we it was we had enormous resources. But what we realized is there was so much expertise out of just the people who are internal employees, and that, thus it, it really created as uh, uh, exactly as you say. If you can find people who are really good at something and, and you can trust them, and that's very important, by the way, uh, the trust factor. Uh, so we we weigh that very highly. Um, you can, you can really avail yourself of expertise that is outside your core competency. And that's where kind of, I think the hedge fund world has moved to a little bit at a time that when things have gotten very, very interesting on a macro level. And we're, I think we're going to talk about valuations and things like that. I mean, things have changed dramatically in the last couple of years. And actually, I think hedge funds who are doing these kinds of single ideas have a wind at their back. So maybe that's a really good segue into this topic of why now for hedge funds, because there has been not the most stellar outperformance for them in totality and aggregate. That's not to say that there haven't been very strong performers, but over the last decade, many funds have trailed. So maybe talk about why you think that was the case and what is changing to make today's environment really set up well for hedge funds to excel? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it's very, it's very, uh, I think in the last 10 years, there's been a lot of disappointment with hedge fund returns overall. I mean, it's a pretty diverse area, right? But collectively, it's been pretty weak. You know, one thing I was thinking about is that, you know, if you remember that from 2000 to 2010, where you had those two big dips in the market in 02 and 08. They call that a lost decade because that was a 0.0% return compounded for the S&P 500. And that's when hedge funds did really well. They annualized, I think, depending on your index, 7 or 8%. And then what happened? All the money started flooding into hedge funds post 08. And what happened? 2010 to 2020, uh, the S&P annualized north of 14%. Um, and hedge funds really underperformed. And so, and I think we're through that period. I mean, who knows what will happen, right? But, um, but what I think happened very unique in 2010 to 2020 is you had a 14% S&P, 14 and change. And then you also had bonds perform great. So a 60-40 portfolio made perfect sense. I mean, and you made a ton of money. It was passive and you're paying almost very, very little fees. I think those days are over, certainly on the bond side of things. Um, it's what, on the bond side of things, Grant, uh, Grant's interest rate observer, I think they called it, fixed income now, return-free risk, 
Um, I think that's right. It's, I think it's right. And uh, so that part of the 60-40 looks challenged. And then you have equity valuations where they are probably a result of bond yields being so low. So I think it was very cheap, easy and it was cheap to get beta. And I don't know if you want beta entirely right now um, at a time when there are a lot of shifts going on in the economy. This, just this past you know, COVID crisis and recovery, you've seen the value of active management. It's incredible what some people were able to do. Who, who foresaw what could happen to a virus in January that you know, blew up on all of us in March and protected their portfolios and then bought every recovery play in April as soon as the Fed stepped in. Um, so I just think that it's been a really good 15, 18 months for hedge funds. Um, so it's a good start to this decade. And then um, and at a time when valuations are high, bond yields are low, it could be fabulous. Um, and I'm seeing incredibly interesting single ideas coming across our desks. So um, given, given that you had this proliferation of new capital flowing in over the past decade, has there been enough of a shakeout in the industry so that the opportunity set has improved? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, it's been interesting, though, because you've had odd winners, you know, sort of these multi-strat platforms have been amazing and continue to execute, and they've gotten bigger. Um, on the other hand, I think we've realized that very large long-short equity funds, like super, super large, sometimes some strategies, those really don't thrive. Um, extremely large distressed and credit firms, I think, really are struggling, uh, struggling what to do and how to put money to work. So on the one hand, I don't... We haven't seen a huge shakeout, Johnny, that I, that I think you'd expect um, with underperformance. But on the other hand, you've seen a proliferation of smaller funds that are out there, and they're happy to be in Atlanta or Charlottesville or wherever, um, running two or $300 million. That's the biggest change I've seen is that those guys didn't exist 10 years ago. Honestly, that's the area that I think looks most interesting to me. They're sort of off the beaten path. They're not being covered by the same sell-side person in New York City. And there's just a lot of talent out in the world right now and uh, with a very good opportunity set. So your point about distressed credit is interesting because it raises the notion about how in this recovery, we've seen a lot of zombie companies thrive. You look at the performance of weak balance sheet companies have done much better than strong balance sheet companies. And it, it raises two questions. One, has the price signal or price setting mechanism in the fixed income world been changed because of the Fed's willingness to step in and be a buyer of last resort? And it also raises the question of, does this open up the opportunity set for things to short, where there are companies that have huge valuations, but don't have the financials or even the growth outlooks necessarily to support those valuations? Yeah, in the first part, I think you're 100% right that uh, the Fed stepping in has changed everything and that when they, they didn't even buy high-yield bonds, but by saying that they would they would or they could buy high-yield bonds, it created everything just moved right up to par and uh, at a time when rates were already low. And then you had a cliff after that, like the triple Cs that, you know, if you're a coal company or a distressed oil and gas company or a U.S. retailer, it really, it, there really is a very clear have and have not. It's not like a continuum along that credit curve, uh, like a 45 degree angle. It's more like a cliff. Um, so if you're in trouble, you're really in trouble, right? So, and liquidity conditions are crazy, uh, as good, as open as we've ever seen in any of our careers. I think um, you made the point once that if you couldn't get access to capital last year, then you were beyond distress. There was something so seri seriously wrong with you. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've heard that, you know, from and 
and, 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 and that's from what I've understood too, from the largest distress players, they're all in the same deals because there's so few of them and, um, and they're harder. Um, because if you're in, I think you're right, uh, Cameron, because it's, uh, if you, if you didn't have access to capital in a time when capital's flowing, um, you, it's, it, you really are in dire straits. Your second half of your question on valuation on the equity side, um, tell, explain that to me a little bit more so I understand what you're driving at. Sure. So the idea that you have seen because of this free flowing liquidity and easy access to capital that you have seen companies that might have without that access to capital been forced to restructure in much more uh, aggressive ways, but they've seen their stock prices go through the roof. They've um, been able to take on lots of debt on the balance sheets. You've seen a, you know, a lots of IPOs and SPACs. And so a lower quality, more speculative side of the market has really blossomed or boomed. And so does this create the opportunity for people to sharpen their pencils and to say, "Eh, these are the winners and these are the losers. And I can step in and start shorting the losers once, you know, once some of that speculative air starts getting let out of the market. Yeah, yeah, that is a great question. I I mean, I I view that though as an allocator and through the lens of hedge funds. So Mm -hmm. I don't really have the answer to that, but uh, that is exactly what's happened. It's been an explosion of uh, market uh, capital market activity. It's not just SPACs, it's uh, everyone, high yield issuance, converts, secondaries is just exploded. And that's exactly what is happening is that companies that probably would have been bankrupt or a concept stock that wouldn't have gotten funded has gotten funded. Um, and, you know, a lot, we invest a lot of long short equity funds and they are excited for the short side is a, a mild, uh, you know, statement because they're um, I mean, there are companies with no, who, are, who are trading at lofty valuations have no revenue projected from the company till 2025. Um, I mean, it's extraordinary. And they're like flying taxi companies, you know, who knows? Um, so um, I think that that has created a lot of dispersion on the one hand. And then on the other hand, you know, there, that's, that's what's so great is that there's so many countervailing forces, right? Where um, as at the same time that is happening, you have extraordinary innovation in biotech and then you have it in technology. I think like I might, you know, uh, one thing I missed was uh, a total addressable market for these tech companies, the TAM. It is, it, it's the earth. So if you have a great payment system like Square or, you know, you can, you, you can be as dominant in the United States as you can be in the rest of the first and second world. So, um, and I think we all fail to really understand how dominant these tech companies could possibly be um, or globally. Um, and so anyway, it's just a lot of things going on in the market that make me think that riding the beta of equity, which has probably been driven primarily by credit compressing, it's now a time to pick winners and losers. Um, and that's been going on now. It's, it's almost as if we back, if we backward integrate what you're saying into the view for the market over the next five to 10 years, is that the last 10 years, we've had a trending market with relatively low volatility because you were starting from a very low valuation with lots and lots of liquidity being added to the market in order to continue to propel valuations higher. 
Now you're starting from a very high valuation, the prospect that that liquidity can continue, but the growth of it doesn't necessarily have to be at the same pace it's been over the last year. And so this upward trending market may turn more into a choppy sideways market where total returns uh, are not as high as they have been that mid-teens percentage. So you, you end up having to get your returns by the rotations and taking advantage of the volatility, not just by setting it and forgetting it and closing your eyes and waiting to, you know, well, to look at your account in 10 years. It's a great point because... Who knows, honestly, Cameron, everything you, that may be true, exactly what you said, but then it could change tomorrow. I mean, uh, to give you an idea how myopic we can be sometimes, uh, you know, things are opening up in the United States, obviously, right? But COVID is a devastating thing around the world. And it's really struck home to me. I talked to a, uh, one of our, my consultants that I work with in, who's in Asia, and he said, you have, and he just said, it's utter disaster in places like Malaysia, like Philippines, India has been high. And so you're getting stutter step, right? Where Europe's taking a while to open up. You know, it's a very different in Europe right now. UK is just, is doing fabulously. And so you're getting these, and who knows, maybe we get a third wave. And that's what I love about the hedge fund space. It's uh, it's like, I'm bullish, you know, honestly, like the, the pejorative is, some, it could be something like, I'm bullish, but call me tomorrow. You know, and and, and you can make those, ch- those changes, those choices very quickly, um, come what may. And um, the model is, I think it's very suited for the world we're in. Like, who knows? I mean, if we're talking about this liquidity injection, like yours, that's, that's what's happened. And now we're talking about infrastructure spend. But now there's some debate around that. Like, what, what are we going to really get? Where's the money really going to go? How difficult are Republicans going to be? Um, what's going to happen to cap gains tax? So I think that it's very dynamic. Clearly, uh, that's an understatement. But um, hedge funds will be there to, they'll be, in, they're already in the market. Um, I get asked about inflation all the time. Actually, these guys are in the middle of inflationary trades constantly on a bottom-up basis, but they're not buying gold. You know, that's a perfect example, what you were talking about. Like gold was the obvious inflation hedge before the start of the year. It's one of the biggest underperforming assets here today. I mean, who would have thought? Um, but yet what you really wanted to own was companies that, uh, that had exposure to lumber, <laughs> lumber mm-hmm. prices. I mean, where were all those macro guys telling us to buy lumber a year ago? They weren't there. So... Anyway, I, I, not to be too long-winded, but I do think hedge funds have the right model for kind of the world we're in. Let's let's revisit the topic about uh, about technology, and yep. you have some really interesting insights there about the promises of these new technologies that are receiving very high valuations today, and how you think about these new technologies as growth drivers into the future for the domestic and the emerging world? I mean, uh, again, through the lens, through hedge funds. So I, what do I know? But uh, it's so interesting that that dynamic in that um, would we have gotten Tesla if the high yield market wasn't wide open? Probably not. I mean, to the degree we got it, right? Um, and now you have SpaceX and Starlink, which are, uh, SpaceX's Wi-Fi um, initiative uh, satellites. I just think it's an amazing moment where you have a flood of liquidity. You have some things that are, are look so attractive and incredible that wouldn't happen without that liquidity. That's an interesting aside, not to, to jump in and, yeah. and interrupt you, but but that is one of the arguments that 
uh, Quinn and Turner make in their book, uh, Boom and Bust, is that not all bubbles are bad in the sense that they can accelerate the development of technologies by throwing capital at, at many innovators and as many players as you possibly can. And so even though it can be detrimental from a financial markets perspective and people can lose a lot of money, the actual overall economy benefits from the fact that markets for lending, for investing were wide open, and you were able to provide people with uh, liquidity that you know, could, could, uh, could accelerate the development of the technology. It's a great point. I wish I'd read that book, but I, I, <laughs> I've seen that. It's like, it's booms and busts, right? And you're seeing so, what I see on, on CNBC is all about SPACs and how they were so great. Now it's so awful. Um, and, uh, I just think that that's completely what's happening. And one of the reasons the U S is so dominant right now, and I see it around the world, it's a very interesting dynamic going on is that U S and Chinese technology companies are so far ahead that most companies and countries can't catch up. And, uh, in that, like how is, I mean, Google just printed a $50 billion quarter revenue quarter earn $26 a share. I mean, anyway, they're, they're so far ahead and, and most of that revenue is outside the U.S. Um, so uh, we're very lucky in the U.S. on who, you know, we have Apple and Google. And I remember one of our managers who's a tech fund in Palo Alto said, we think that someday these companies could be awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. And I thought, what is he thinking? Now I understand actually what he was thinking is that these we're as globally dominant as we've ever been in the history of our country. And it's not because of our military, uh, it's because of our companies. So yeah, I mean, that's what's neat. I'm seeing it on biotech as well. Um, biotech is getting flooded with money and there are breakthroughs going on, especially in oncology. And it's all coming out of the United States. I, I'm, not a, I'm not trying to be a rah-rah patriot, but it is absolutely incredible that uh, globally, how much research is focused in the United States in tech and in, um, and in biotech. Well, I mean, that leads to an interesting point, though. Uh, you're talking about the opportunity set for the business, the technological advances, how they're going to propel earnings growth over, over time. And we've written about this parallel before about comparing to the Nifty 50, where uh, you had a similar advance of, of companies that were above average growth. And uh, in the subsequent decade, they had above average growth on their earnings. But because of PE compression, they underperformed the market. So I wonder if you could comment on that it, from the, as an allocator of capital, um, even if you have this great um, change in technology, does that translate to good investment opportunity from this stage? Isn't that the billion dollar question, John? <laughs> if I knew the answer to that, I'd be a billionaire. But um, I, 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 it's a great point. And I think though that um, what's so great about like in the hedge fund space, just the area that I'm in is that the, like Apple printed a similar, a bigger quarter, 80 billion in revenue, right? And, but people were anticipating that 10 years ago. And if somebody said Apple is going to print an $80 billion quarter, you pro he probably would have been laughed out of the room. And it was a big holding for hedge funds a long time ago. I mean, I had a mutual fund, a friend of mine ran a mutual fund and told me, why would you buy Apple? Everyone's buying Apple because of iTunes. And really, it's an education company. And, and you know, I, and here we are, right? Uh, uh, and he's still in the business. But um, uh <laughs> I think that they're, the great thing is we're looking ahead. Um, and actually, if you look at how Google and Apple have done, Johnny, in the last couple of months, even though they printed those amazing numbers, their uh, stock returns have just been, have been down a little bit. And um, so maybe we're there. You know, maybe 
I think that we're trying to discount future cash flows, right? And, uh, and that's where hedge funds have been very, very good. Um, so I don't know. They're, they're doing the new stuff. And one of the detriments, though, to Cameron's point earlier on like money flooding in the war, in, in, into everything is that now we're getting ahead of ourselves. Now we're anticipating too much. And um, so we're funding things that, you know, who knows if these delivery food companies are going to turn a profit at some point. Um, but some of them have $35, $40 billion valuations. Um, so I think it's, it, that's, that's the big question, Johnny. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, but I do know it's very dynamic. Well, you know, it's it's this notion that whatever company you're investing in is going to be the next big tech company, but does that tech company really have the same TAM as the ones that are dominant today? Yeah, or and and what I find the hardest in that world is technical obsolescence. I mean, things have gotten so complex that how do how does the layman i mean you can't even, even technology people I, I invest with have trouble with how semiconductors are evolving because the technology is changing and at a time when extraordinary disruptions upon us like in talked about batteries and electricities and ev but now there's i mean i just read a report about how much uh how many different ev um or electric vehicle uh, the the core batteries are using how many competing different technologies there are and the man, and the guy I said, who's a, he's an engineer, PhD. He said, I'm not sure which one's going to win. How are we going to decide which one's going to win as investors? And that, that, I think you made that point as well one time when we were speaking, which was that maybe the better bet is betting clearly on those that are going to lose out in the new world. Picking the ultimate winner that emerges 10 years from now is a lot harder than picking the company that is or the, the area that is going to lose from this shift to a new technology. Yeah, very hard to do. <laughs> Again, we'd be billionaires. We all know that answer. But yeah, that's and that's one of the interesting funds and uh, things about hedge funds. Like I'm, I'm not messed with a fund that they have this great premise where they, they, they made that point about um, going long electricity and electricity infrastructure, everything for batteries, transmission, everything. Um, and uh, but the alpha they feel is actually just shorting the hydrocarbon complex. And you and their point is you'll get dead cat bounces and they try to hedge that with um, factors on the long side. But you're right. When you have a shift in technology, maybe it's better not to pick who the absolute winner is going to be. What, you know, way back when, would you have said Netscape would be out of business and Google would have won and Yahoo would be out of business? I mean, it's amazing. What's but uh, not, they're not out of business. They're, not, Yahoo, they're almost out of business. Um, but our AOL, I think my father's the last AOL user, um, <laughs> is um, it's, it's the shift away from other things. And that's where hedge funds can do it. I mean, if you've been long internet browsers and, and short newspapers for the last 20 years, you've done all right. Or regional uh, TV stations, um, thing, any traditional advertising. Um, so it, it, I guess we'll always have disruption. And it's always, uh, uh, it's always tempting to say, boy, it's now it's extraordinary. But it does feel that way, doesn't it, right now? Are there areas where you think, you know, as you talk to all, you know, all of the, the contacts that you have that are of particular excitement where you say, yeah, this seems to be the broad area that is going to, to have the most impact on, on overall economic growth? Oh, I, you know, we've got a few things that are like that, like, and, and they're very idiosyncratic. So I wish, again, I wish I knew, but, um, you know, but, but, you know, some, like we have one fund that we invest with that's a real tech, a futurist 
type person. And um, I don't know if you guys ever saw the movie or read the book, Ready Player One, where basically mm -hmm. people live in a virtual world. Um, and he talks about the metaverse, which is he thinks that's the future. That's the future of 10 to 15 years from now, where people will go to school with in, wearing goggles, you know, in their house, they'll go to work. Uh, and, and so he's, but it, what's interesting about what they do though, is that they don't say, well, that's, you know, that's my view and I'm, that's where we're going. So I'm going to invest precisely that way. He looks at everything that gets staked out in that world. Like who's going to win? Is it Roblox? Um, the, or the Epic games. And these guys are investing in Epic games where, you know, they had, um, they had a concert inside a game, uh, singer called, uh, uh, God, he's a rapper that I didn't even know, uh, but my kids know, uh, Marshmallow or a DJ. And, um, and they had 18 million people show up and they were from Korea, they're US, from China, they're everywhere. 18, 18 million people inside a game virtually in a 3D environment. I mean, it's amazing. And, uh, and uh, so, so anyway, I think that thinking about that and who could benefit and who might win, that has led people to, you know, we invested in uh, co-investment in a company called Unity Technology, which is the one of the leaders in the in 3D rendering, um, uh, it's a software business. It does games, a lot of mobile games. Um, so, so it's very it's very interesting what's going on. So that I think that area is something we like. Um, we've invested in uranium equities, believe it or not, because of um, which is a whole debate. But it's it is the best carbon free uh, uh, in terms of uh, uh, creating electricity. You know, you might have other problems or you might have other worries, but carbon is not one of them. And uh, to, to get to the electricity usage that we need to get to, and then if, if we were to really get convert to an electric fleet, boy, we're gonna need a lot more electricity and it's not, it's not gonna be all solar and wind um, and because the batteries aren't there yet, although they're trying. So that's the debate. Is it gonna be solar and wind plus batteries or is, it, is uranium and, and nukes, you know, 54 nuclear uh, reactors under construction globally, uh, almost all outside the US. Anyway, I just think that's a neat area that I think as you try to anticipate what's gonna happen, try to be very real, real world about how you're going to uh, profit from it. And not just buying an ETF or buying some, because then you get stuck with those facts that we were talking about earlier that are like, yeah, they're EV, they're fake, right? They're not, they're not real, they're, 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 they're trying to catch a trend. And I see that all the time. You know, artificial intelligence, electric, you just throw in a bunch of these terms and you can get a billion dollar valuation. And that, you know, that's the folly of some of these new emerging thematic ETFs where one pitfall is that you get a bunch of companies that aren't real, uh, that there's that the, the outlook for even revenue is still many years off, or you get a theme that is so close to the underlying index and, you know, maybe you own 10 basis points more of one company and 10 basis less yeah. points of, of another, but you're paying another 50 extra basis points because it's labeled as thematic of, you know, some sort of, you know, clean something or, or, you know, new growth. And it's not necessarily reflected in the underlying securities. Completely. Yeah, I think that's right. So it's a, it, it, but that's true of any time in history that you have a lot of fluff along the way of something real. So that's what we're trying to do is suss out what's real. Um, and I can't, you know, I said it twice, so I'll, I'll stop saying it, but I do think the two-way nature of hedge funds is really interesting because you can profit both ways. Um, and on being long that winner, that perceived winner with people who are really experts, 
and shorting the fluff who are the, the me too fake ones. So, um, and you don't get that in that, that thematic ETF. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Are, are any of your guys you know, talking about future of energy and, and where it, you know, future sources of energy and storage, is there a lot of buzz still around hydrogen fuel cells? Is that something that is huge disruptive? Yeah, it's huge. It's highly debated on efficacy, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, but, but again, it's like, um, you know, we're invested with a very large fertilizer company. Um, I think it'd be okay to say it. we have a co-investment company called CF Industries and, um, and they're basically used nitrogen for, you know, it's fertilizer for crops. Um, and how will they transport all this hydrogen and ammonia could be the winner. And, and so you have these like non-obvious things like, uh, could it be? And then, so that, so we're not betting on that, but that as the outer ring of sort of like, could this if this worked out, could hydrogen be a huge, uh, uh, huge winner for our culture? Uh, and how will we get it there? A company like CF, a Midwestern, you know, basically a farming uh, conglomerate, you know, historical co-op um, could be a huge winner. Um, so, but then again, I've, you know, really some great clients and one of them's really smart family office done a lot of research. They're not sure of the efficacies there on hydrogen. And, um, but that's what makes markets. I mean, I do think that like, one of the things that's changed really from five, 10 years ago is the velocity of ideas and monies and the scale of it has moved so fast. And that that's made it harder for individual investors to sort of buy the winner of an idea theme. And um, that's why I, I rely on really, t- really, really good experts in certain areas. Like our biotech guy is a medical doctor who is very skeptical of the next treatment to treat X, Y, Z cancer. And, you know, it's, he's, you know, it's just, it, I think you really do have to veil yourselves of experts um, as much as you possibly can and, and know where your limitations are. And so, um, you know, like we were in a lot of more software and um, food delivery, things like that last year. And we shifted luckily to more cyclical names for a number of reasons. I mean, we didn't understand the shift that was going on precisely in the market, but we knew that guys who were experts in the more industrial cyclical areas were pounding the table at like, wow, I'm trading at five times earnings and I'm, I might see a massive up, uh, economic uplift if we get all the stimulus. I mean, that, you know what I mean? You look for those conditions, you don't know the future. So um, I think that that's where hedge funds can play a role for people. I think it's, they're very, they, they ride the, dyna, the dynamic aspects of the market until they end and shift into the next part. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting when in my in my former life and in covering industrials, it was always the moments when people were the least eager to talk to me that it was likely the best time to invest <laughs> yeah. when it took the greatest convincing to say, no, you really got to look at this, that um, that was the opportunity. And it's when I was the most popular analyst in the room <laughs> that I said, you know, take it easy, like, you know, a hold back. You know, I remember the first the first promise of infrastructure back in, in 2016 and everybody was, was buying into industrials and, and the, the index peaked on a relative basis two weeks later after, after the promise of the election and, and infrastructure. And so that sort of contrarian blood that runs within a lot of the hedge fund world, I think is, is so powerful, mostly going into a world that we could start seeing shorter cycles, right? Not these super long-term trending cycles. It's just always, I mean, I think, uh, and I know you guys both have 
a real macro bent to what you do in, in a really great way. That's what's so great about markets. It's very three-dimensional, right? They're all, it's never just a linear, you know, A plus B equals C. It's, it's there are all these conditions that are changing all the time. And at a time when you have extraordinary, I mean, really it's under, it's an overused word, but I mean, if you add up the monetary stimulus with the amount of stimulus coming out of the executive branch um, post COVID, I mean, we're gonna have the biggest economic boom fueled by that since World War II on uh, GDP um, uh, dollar basis. And so, um, but the markets discount and that's what we have to, you know, to your point on your industrials and when they peaked, uh, we got to be anticipatory. And so I think that I try to find the, the managers looking around the corner and it's hard to find those guys or, or gals, you know? So, so I think it's, uh, you know, we're always out there looking for great funds. Um, and you spend a lot of time with a lot of okay ones and a lot of duds, but then to find that one extraordinary thinker. And it's, it's the, the people who are brave enough to make those calls that either you're trough on trough, you're trading at five times earnings and nobody wants to talk to you yeah. or you're peak on peak, meaning that <laughs> you are putting your highest multiple on your highest momentum earnings. And it's not to say that they can't keep growing, but if they start growing less, the market is going to anticipate that and start putting pressure on the multiples. Right. And we're starting to see that in some parts of tech, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know, nobody, nobody's debating that these things can't grow. It's just, what are you, what are you going to pay for it? Yeah, exactly. So that's what, you know, and, and by the way, I don't mean to be too negative on tech. I mean, actually we're seeing fabulous opportunity. I mean, it's not just the U S I mean, right now we're actually doing a decent amount of work on uh, pre IPO names in Europe. Um, and we've invested in two so far and we're looking at a third, a lot of these same, you know, German engineers or English physicists, um, they're now catching up and developing interesting technologies in Europe. And so whether it's payments businesses in Europe, um, we're looking at a database company that um, invented uh, a new database structure. Um, what I'm finding is that the opportunities are at a time when all the capital uh, looking at pre-IPO and Series E type private companies is really centered in the United States. And so what I'm finding is that those things, the U.S. companies are incredibly competitive and the valuations are much higher and actually partially because of COVID, because no one can go to Europe for the past year. So you have to do everything on a phone call or Zoom. And, um, and there are just not as many crossover players looking at those kind of bigger technology companies in Europe. So that, that's been very interesting to learn about um, and see the dichotomy, dichotomy between European valuations versus the United States. So to switch gears a little bit. Yeah. We, hedge funds have been a lot in the news uh, this year with the meme stock rallies and blowups for yeah. some hedge funds, the short squeezes, plus the uh, the meltdown of Archegos. And it has shined a light on the industry. So are your funds that you speak to concerned about changing regulations as well as this idea that Johnny asked us, has there been enough shakeout in the industry to make it so there are there isn't too much money chasing too few too few opportunities? I mean, I, I view that as it's where a uh, it's always something, you know. And Archegos was very localized. I mean, literally, the guy just lost all his own money. Um, but but if I come to you and said, well, five times levered, and um, I, I just can't believe that banks. I mean, the regulation will come down. Is, we're going to all figure out what happened and why somebody got that kind of leverage. Um, I mean, that's gambling, right? And um, 
I think, though, that very localized. Um, and then the Reddit stuff's fascinating. I mean, that's that's a structural change to the market. Um, and uh, I think, honestly, people welcome it because very few funds got caught up in that to the degree that uh, that hurt them. Uh, there were very, a couple of very large funds that were well publicized. But in general, like it's been more like, wow, that that happened. And now there's a big retail element of the market. And that's a positive because it creates more volatility, more liquidity. So many, I mean, people, I don't, do you remember two years ago, you guys probably remember this, everyone saying, lamenting how few, um, how we're getting less and less actual stocks in the stock market, how the number was declining. Mm-hmm. And now that's exploded the other way. Um, so I think that everyone welcomes this. Um, I don't think there are too few ideas. I, I, I feel like there's, uh, in our case, there's too little capital uh, to chase those ideas. Um, because here we are, I mean, if you, looking backwards, we've been on a trend since the 80s, uh, bond yields compressing, and they have stopped compressing. Uh, you can debate whether they're going up a lot or not. I actually think that, you know, we've also stopped going up a lot in the last three months. I don't know if everyone noticed that, but um, we, we may get a real spike in yields, but, um, or we may not, but what they did do is stop going down. And um, I think that's a huge change to the market and the regimes that have prevailed for the last 20 years, 30 years um, in that case. So um, I, I think it's actually going to be a shooting gallery of opportunities for, uh, for hedge funds that really concentrate their ideas, do good work, and can stand, by, stand in these ideas when there's volatility. Yeah, that, that idea of the interest rate shift does bring up a different point and a different uh, type of investment in, in that search for yield. And then the traditional fixed income markets being challenging in a rising rate environment, if, if we really are in a sustained rising rate environment or not. Um, alternative credit, though, is, is a little bit of a different animal. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how you see that space as an option. And uh, you know, you know, Johnny, I was thinking about this last night um, that I don't really have a great answer because, it, you know, um, I how many cautionary tales have we, do we all, all collectively know about um, when people start stretching for yield um, and to get earn that extra 50 to 75 or 100 basis points? So on the one hand, I think private credit, there's some really interesting things in private credit. You have to be very careful. I mean, you have to really go with professionals. And to me, some of the things that make a lot of sense, which is obvious to anyone, is any sponsor credit where you're basically arbitraging what a bank would pay out to a private equity sponsor and you're now just getting in the middle of that. Um, that makes sense to me. Um, but other parts of credit, private credit, we're doing private loans to small businesses and it's just a bilateral agreement. I think it's fraught with uh, underwriting issues. Um, so just we, we just had a major situation that didn't get overly publicized in the United States in Greensill out of Europe. Um, that was a soft bank fu- uh, fund that blew, or a firm that blew up and declared bankruptcy. And that's what they're doing. They're doing something called trade finance, but it's basically short-term loans to companies. Um, again, it w- and really at the heart of it, it was people stretching a little bit to get a little more yield, and now their principal's in trouble. So um, I, I think yeah, I, I'd err on conservatism in this department. We've written a lot about the rise of leverage and how, if you look on the surface, people kind of shrug their shoulders and say, no big deal because the cost of servicing that extra debt is so low. But that then creates the environment that causes you to take on even more debt, opens up to to weaker players to take on that debt and creates 
greater structural issues. So it may not be an issue today, may not be an issue next year, but you know that when things finally come to a head, it can amplify the eventual downside. Totally. I agree with that hundred percent. So careful, That's, especially now, I mean, where high yield bonds, you know, they're, you can maybe get 4%. It's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible environment. Mm-hmm. So um, I agree hundred percent. The question about price discovery changing in that, there has been so much access to capital at the same time as that the markets have reopened for new companies to enter in with IPOs and SPACs. And so who is best positioned to take advantage of these, this changing dynamic? Well, I mean, I think that price discovery is dramatically changed partially because the Fed, right, mm-hmm. um, in many ways. Um, as you, you pointed out at one point, zombie companies are still around and accessing capital markets. But on the other hand, like great companies are choosing to stay private for longer. Um, I mean, just recently, this uh, company Snowflake that debuted at a 70 billion market cap. Um, I mean, all that money, that accruing that value went to the private holders. Um, I, as one of my managers pointed out to me that, you know, Amazon debuted at a $200 million market cap and went to $2 trillion, and, and all that growth, if you'd been lucky or had the foresight to own it, went to the public market investor. And, um, and so on, in many, many, many ways, like price discovery has changed. And so we're trying to create a model where you can avail yourself at the right point at the right time. Um, as much as, I, 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 by the way, shorting is price discovery too, right? So, uh, so I think that like we're short a high yield bond, uh, 103 uh par three points above par bond for short uh, because it, it's a long story but basically it's about to go bankrupt uh yet it's it's got a high yield and so index owners own it um but we've done more in the pre-ipo space because um because of this dynamic um it's it, it's an extraordinary amount of money that is being raised privately um and if you look at some of the biggest hedge funds and some like Tiger Global has led the way. They've been amazing um, on, on forecast being ahead of the curve on this front, but there are many others who are doing it as well. So we're making sure where our investors have access to those things. And I think it's important and not just to be a price taker in the public market. And the reality is, as you're saying, is that for in this world, fewer investors have access to yeah. the ability to you know get those you know what can eventually be you know ten baggers ten x whatever you know, the valuation is today that if they wait so long until IPO that the upside once there is an IPO is is less and so it's getting in prior to that and participating in the private side of things. Yep, that's it. it, it and they're with risk, obviously. So they're not all you know the ten baggers. That would be ideal, but. Uh, that you know they're they're clients of these ideas I know in the past but you have to be really careful you have to partner with the right people because I see all these things floating around out there so just in the same way the public markets cash is everywhere same in the private market so again it just got to be really careful yeah it's definitely a, a treacherous environment uh when you have the combination of high liquidity, high optimism, and a lot of FOMO. Yeah, exactly. Totally. With, with legitimate technology disruption, right? That's always, I mean, like extraordinary, like our, our entire electrical grid is being upended. It's, it's an amazing moment. Um, 
for and, and it's good. I mean, we're all we should all be happy to be in this country where a lot of the changes are emanating from, in my view. So technology change has often been at the heart of speculative bubbles. It was you know, telecommunication and electrical technology and, and radio technology in the 1920s that right. were the lead drivers. It was internet companies in the in the 90s, and it was bicycles in the late 1800s. So yeah, yeah. this is there is this isn't a new thing for us to be on the precipice of a new technology and extrapolate into the future without necessarily in the present knowing who's going to be winners and losers and what we should actually be paying for them. Completely. I agree. And, and, and think about, I mean, just all you have to do is look at one YouTube video of, uh, of uh, SpaceX landing a, a rocket, a reusable rocket, which five years ago, Lockheed Martin said would be impossible to do, to, to reuse a rocket and landing on a platform in the ocean that's being run by a drone. I mean, right? You guys laughed me out of the room if I told you this would happen ten years ten years from now. So it's it's hard to predict, but it's it's really incredible, and may, and that's the the upside of all this liquidity environment, isn't it? Right? And you pointed that out that there's there are these these things, these great things come about with liquidity, these bad things come with liquidity, and maybe it's the maybe it's time for someone to really focus on single ideas rather than an index. I mean, that's easy. I'm talking my book, but I do think that that's probably the right time for this sort of strategy. Well, I think that's a that's a good place for us to to wrap up and I'm super grateful that you would join us. This has been a fascinating conversation uh, as always and we're thrilled that you would you would share your time and insight. I really appreciate it and thanks for your support too. If you enjoyed Field Points of View, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast app. It helps more people find the show. The preceding content is for informational purposes only and based on information available when created. It is not an offer or solicitation, nor is it tax or legal advice. It does not consider your financial circumstances, objectives or risk tolerance, and could be unsuitable for you. Fuelpoint Private encourages you to speak with an investment professional before making any investment decisions.